Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast every week, putting a microscope to our cultural intake and excreta. Today we're talking about indie animation. I'm Mark Lintemeyer, only available at 12 frames per second. I'm Erica Spires, here with 2D visuals and 3D effects. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm pretty accomplished in this area, if you count grade school flipbooks. And our guest. I'm Benjamin Goldman, and I have been afflicted with the occupation of animator. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Afflicted? That's a pretty strong choice of words. You know the expression glutton for punishment? Sure. I think with animators, there's that bit of self-punishment that's involved in what we do. Hmm. Animation can be like a road trip. And you're like, oh, let's drive to California. Sounds like a great idea. And then somewhere in Ohio, you kind of run out of peanut butter and you want to not be in the car. So animation can be a lot like that, where you have this great idea and you have so much fun planning it. And then when you get into the weeds with it, it can be kind of arduous. So I think there's a lot of excitement in the beginning of a project and then sort of struggle in the middle and then some kind of payoff at the end when it's received by other people that is maybe short-lived or maybe sustained. A lot of animators see their work and only look at what could be different or better. You know, there is a, a lot of pain in this art form. That I am not surprised with. What I'm surprised it with is is that I just thought it was obvious that it would be that hard. So the fact that you're still like, yeah, I'm all about this. Give me that job. Oh, man. I was amazed you got as far as Ohio before... <laughs> experiencing existential crisis. I, yeah, I'm about halfway across New Jersey when I realize how <laughs> how much work this is going to be. Right. Maybe there's that fantasy with lots of pursuits that, oh, if I get something to a certain place, then the help will come or the studio or whatever. Uh, the Duplass brothers have this book where they talk about independent filmmaking and they refer to that help as the cavalry. And they say the cavalry is most certainly not coming. If you're doing this, if it's an independent thing, if you're doing it for the love of what you're doing, just keep doing it. And don't assume that Netflix is going to swoop in to save the day because they're probably not. And if they do, it probably won't be on terms that would be exciting to you having started this from a place of the joy of expression or exploration. Gotcha. Yeah. What strikes me, Benjamin, is the extreme amount of investment that goes into your creation, where if you need to make changes either for internal or external reasons, you know, as a writer, it's, you know, it's words and it's an effort to put them down, but it's not you know, the 40 minutes minimum per frame to draw where you've just spilled so much effort into it that, and maybe that's just part of the business or if you work for a big company, it's, I know that was a big theme that Mark wanted to get at was this difference between working for Uber bosses and kind of doing it for yourself. And can you bring yourself to realize, Hey, I made a pacing problem and I spent a month on this and I got to get rid of it now. 
I think you really put your finger on something, which is that when you're doing that kind of development, story development, you're trying to make something better and better and better, and you're part of an organization like Pixar, it's going to happen. It'll just keep getting better and better. There are literally hundreds of people waiting to make it better and better. There is, a, I think, a storyboard artist for every shot or sequence that's just pitching ways to make it better and better, and that there are all these great documentaries about early Pixar and and how they made Toy Story, but it didn't feel right. So they sort of redid it. And, you know, the investors were going nuts. And the amount of enthusiasm plus the amount of people plus the amount of money makes for the ability to just do and redo and redo. And that when you're on this, a smaller scale of an independent film or a personal project, or even a gig with limited budget, there's that real pressure point where whether the request is coming from a client or your own sense of, oh, it would be so much better if I just X, Y, Z hits the reality of how much time you've spent doing something. So there are ways to, I think, create creative boxes, which are interesting to operate within and which may lend themselves more to iterations. I worked on a project that's going to debut on HBO Max in April where a bunch of stories were being told. And I was hired as the animator who was going to bring these stories to life because COVID and you couldn't like shoot all these things very easily. So I worked out with the director, this collage technique, very Terry Gilliam inspired, rough and ready collages. I feel like they did some similar types of of animation. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I, I was just like, oh my God, did they already debut it? And are you not aware that your work is out there right now? It is a solution that probably a lot of studios and animators are thinking of. It's like, oh, if we could just do this collage thing, then we can sort of fix things and make things better and really react to the cut in a way that we couldn't if it was traditional 2D animation or 3D animation where there are these pipelines involved and real human hours going toward every second instead of kind of just like, oh, you have this whim and you try it out and then you turn it in and and it works because the photographs work and the combination of them works and you hold the animation to a different standard when you see it in context with the live action footage of someone telling a story and you hear their voice. It does a lot of the work for you when you see the animation. This particular piece is a series. It's a 10-part series, and I don't remember if I can say what it's about, so I won't. <laughs> but they'll start advertising it soon. I love that that style. So would you call that collage animation? Collage or cutout? I guess we should kind of get at some a little taxonomy. Always the most fun part of any discussion. What constitutes indie animation? Because a lot of what I was, when I was looking for examples, well, it's things that have come from any other country. Right. That apparently their companies are small enough that a cat in Paris or whatever counts as indie animation. I don't really know. Attack on to that question. If you're an indie animator, I'm sure that can mean a number of different types of things. But in general, for the kind of work that you tend to do or what you consider in indie animation, are you doing the storyboarding, the actual animation, the editing all of the artistic components and giving a, that whole product to a client? Or do you have people who are doing the editing and the more like high level creative stuff and you're like the worker bee? It depends on the project. I guess recently I've sort of found this niche where I do everything and that's appealing to the productions. If I'm working, doing title sequences for 
a feature film or a feature documentary, they often will say, we just want one animator. And so I will interface with the the director, sometimes the director and the editor, and provide the animation that gets cut into the film and seen by the whole team. And then I'll make some changes and they'll cut it in again. Usually I'm doing internal editing and it's just a a very specific part of the film. With this HBO gig, 90% of my interactions were with the director and we were doing these specific moments that would get uploaded and then brought into the edit and the editor might adjust the timing a little bit. So that's the sort of, you know, most recent COVID production experience. Before that, when I was doing more stuff with the History Channel or A&E, especially for the branded content, kind of looks like an ad, but it's history. I would bring in possibly two or three other animators and I would try to do the top level animation directing and editing, but it was hard for me to keep my hands off of an animation shot or, or compositing or some way to get my hands dirty which is part of the affliction is like, I can't not touch it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to get back to Mark's question about what is and isn't indie animation, because there's something about his answer that I found terrible. I mean, it can't be that it's foreign. I mean, (laughs) so what's the what's the right answer? Okay, so as someone who is excited about animation and who wants to make animation, there is this sense of if I'm doing it for free or paying for it myself, it's an indie production. If I'm lucky enough to partner with a studio or get investors, it can still be indie. But if those investors or that studio is where you would traditionally go for animation anyway, like, you know, from Pixar to Netflix or or whatever, then it's hard to call it indie. And then there's something in between, which is like Pixar has this thing called, I think they're called short sparks or spark shorts, where they have their sort of campus of animation production and they make grants available to their employees to make independent films with Pixar behind them. So a lot of the Pixar shorts are people who work all across Pixar who are given the opportunity to do something indie, but they can also run it by Pete Doctor and all of these luminaries. It sounds like there's an aspect of who the final decision maker is. And if it is the filmmaker then it has that flavor of indie. Whereas if it's an executive, no matter what, there's some studio boss who is, you know, thinking about the bottom line or whatever and is going to override the filmmaker. You completely lose any aspect of indie to it. From what I've read and people I've talked to who've been in that situation, there's always that dance between the director and the producer or producers that at a place like Pixar or DreamWorks, they'll actually have three or four directors in case one of them isn't towing the party line or doing what they've decided they need to do for the film. It is possible to do an indie production where the money comes in and things start to get tense with what the director wants to do and what the investors are saying you need to do. I worked on a documentary where the investors had a a lot of say in what was happening on the creative side. It was frustrating. And it was the first time this particular group had worked with these investors. And they were basically had to choose between taking the money and doing what the investors thought they would need to do to have the film reach the market in a certain way. Maybe it's easier to say what indie animation isn't. 
It isn't coming from studios that have multi-million or billion dollar deliverables set up ahead of time and they're looking for projects to bring in. You and I had gone back and forth a little bit, just some background for listeners. So Benjamin and I and Brian all went to high school together. Yet another person from our high school. Surprise, surprise. For those keeping track, you're on your second hand counting. So And uh, yes, Benjamin and I were in some plays together. I directed him in one. It was so hearing that he was involved in this and having had some correspondence about some potential projects over the last year or so, I was excited to get him on here, but we couldn't figure out. It seems like as a consumer, just talking about the state of animation, or you don't seem like a huge fan, <laughs> or even some of the like auteur projects, the, sorry, Studio Ghibli. Yeah, Miyazaki. So we kind of settled on this as a way of, <laughs> you know, this is still, of course, even when we're any art form, we want to be talked to like we're an actual person receiving a work of art and not receiving a corporate widget. But animation seems a particularly hard place to do that because of just the actual logistics of producing things and getting people to see them. It's true that when Mark and I were originally talking about this, he put a bunch of references my way and I was like, why do I feel weird about talking about this stuff? And it's because a lot of them I slept through and I didn't intend to. It's just that they lulled me into this, into sleep. And I didn't know if it was because they were boring or because I was so hyper aware of all the work that went into them. I had this like, you know, sort of sympathetic response. But, you know, as we kind of prepared for this conversation and Mark put up uh, the title, uh, independent animated film called I Lost My Body. And I was like, oh yeah, there are some films that I'm riveted. And when I read a little bit about the director, Jeremy Clappin, I want Jeremy Clappin from France. Um, <laughs> he said something in an interview that totally spoke to me, which was that he was interested in making films with poetry. And all of a sudden, it, I realized what was missing from so many films that are trying so hard to tell a story. They might err on the side of telling a story that's sweet and sentimental. So it becomes this sort of like cloying, weird smiles that, you know, you see these people trained as animators trying to be actors. They're not getting it. They're not getting how people really express emotions. And that what Jeremy was after was the poetry of everyday life and wrapping that inside of a of a story that would keep you engaged for 90 minutes. And so, yeah, there are a lot of films from other countries, whether it's the French films of Jeremy Clappin or the triplets of Belleville or the later film, The Illusionist, you know, where people have this love of drawing, this love of observing how life unfolds outside of their sphere, whether they're just making observations on the subway or inside their home or with their animals, but not like animals that become like the, <laughs> which turns a corner into something that I have no interest in. And then something like Miyazaki, you've just got this sort of dream state of these like weird sort of hello kitty I'm still here looking at you they're not like the dreams that I have there's somebody's dreams somebody who dreams of plushies and <laughs> colors and but I don't I don't get it I get Jeremy Clappin he made a short where this guy was in his apartment and a meteorite struck a nearby apartment and it shifted his existence 91 centimeters to the left. So if he wanted to like 
pick up a glass of water, he'd have to aim 91 centimeters away. Like those are the kinds of dreams that I have where something in real life is just a little tweaked and you don't know that it's tweaked or nobody will believe that what you're experiencing is actual. I don't know. I don't mean to lump all animation into sort of good or bad. The ones that speak to me are the ones where I can say, yes, I feel that or I know that. It brings me closer to other people. And Miyazaki's work, it makes me feel like there's a mythology that I just never knew and never will know. Boy, when I bring my five-year-old niece to the theater to see that one, I'm going to really hear about it later, Benjamin. Obviously, with the belief among so many that animation is first and foremost a product for children, we've already talked about how terrifying some of those Disney things are. I mean, it is at its face a little bit ridiculous even to say that, even though I think that's something we start off with. I mean, look at what is on what's called the Cartoon Network, and it's all, it's good stuff, right? I mean, that's what it's for, and then we get in, but it also gives us Adult Swim, and I know we're not talking about television now, but I think there is room in this space for all audiences and all kinds of storytelling. As we were preparing for this, it immediately came to me that it's really short films that I always think of when I think of independent animation, because that's, you know, growing up. And I was mentioning the television show Image Union to my wife, and she had never heard of it. And you growing up with us in Chicago, is that something, Benjamin, you remember watching on PBS? Oh, yeah. WTTW. Yeah, it was something that awoken a part of me that was like, I think it's that same thing. There could be poetry on TV. I don't understand all of it, but I'm getting a sense of something that's uncanny or makes me feel uneasy, but is somehow familiar too. And then when I was an undergrad, my um, senior project got onto Image Union and I thought like I'd made it. My film program, we watched like Maya Darren and Stan Brackage and, you know, like people who just picked up a camera and made films as if they were writing poems. So that was sort of the ideal that you could make something that was ineffable, that spoke in a way that movies couldn't or that writing couldn't. So in a way, I came to animation as moving art. And only later did I explore stories with animation. You know, circling back to what Mark was saying, I felt like if I'm anything, I'm an outsider artist. So I don't want to watch too much of what it is that I could be sucked into. And Image Union was like this exciting sort of mashup of different ways of seeing, different ways of expressing yourself. Just to mention what that was, it was a show on public television that was it mostly independent in student films that would air. And as a youth watching it, the, the main thing that I think everything had in common for me was its sheer inaccessibility. Like I'd watch it and I wouldn't get it, but I'd like maybe when I'm an adult, I'll get this. Yeah, I watched it and I, and I didn't get it. And I was like, yes, someone's out there is as confused as I am. And they're putting it on the screen. Well, Brian, you also raised the exposure that we would get through seeing animation collections at college art house theaters, which I saw a number of those. And those things resulted in you know, maybe you, your thing would get picked up by Saturday Night Live and eventually, you know, mutate into King of the Hill or Beavis and Butthead. You know, I think even the original Simpsons was on the tourney of animation early on. The, the, the shorts that ended up on Tracy Ullman. Right, right. And then became a whole thing. So those were awesome and really felt a little countercultural to, you know, we'd go up to the city to watch those and they were somewhere super obscene and the crowd was pretty rough and I missed that. That was a lot of fun. 
There's like Spike and Mike's Sick and Twisted Animation Festival. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I remember looking at the brochure for one of those things and literally almost blushing. One of the things I realized when Mark started sending out some of these like links to animation is that I was so prude that I could never watch like X-rated stuff animated. Like I couldn't watch it in live action either. I was just like, it wasn't even like my parents wouldn't approve. It's like I wouldn't approve of me watching this. So when like the sick and twisted and like all of these sort of like Fritz the cat and these, I knew about these like gross things that were happening with animation. I kept thinking, why? You can add anything to the massive stuff out there. Why? You know, and then, you know, later it was like the sense of, oh, I feel sorry for the people who are making these things, like from this, like passing judgment on everybody who wasn't as prude as me. (laughs) Now I can see that art and expression are myriad and that I have my own lens and other people have their own lens. And for a lot of people seeing stuff that was sort of taboo in cartoon form was probably very cathartic. You know, they had these things that they didn't quite understand as they were growing up and experiencing these new bodies and they saw it in cartoons and it was like, you know, lighting up different brain centers for them. And I probably would have loved it if I would have allowed myself to (laughs) indulge. There's also a difference when you're watching animation, whether it's like a hand-drawn or computer generated or or even stop motion when it starts to look more and more human but it's not quite there is a creepiness to it so i don't think it matters if you see i'm just thinking anomalisa and watching you know the more intimate scenes and they feel like they're real sometimes and then you like see the cracks on the sides of their faces and there's something super creepy about it also i don't blame you for getting weirder about animated sexual situations that's really an interesting point, and it, it makes me think of the uncanny valley, mm. which is where something starts to become so photorealistic that we start to get hypervigilant about the ways that it's not real life, that something's a little off. And the, the first film that I was aware of where they really wrote about that or talked about that was the Polar Express, where it was this new you know motion capture technique, and it was going to just change the animation world forever, which it kind of did in a way. But at the time, people were like, I don't know why I don't like this, but it feels weird to watch these people, air quotes, doing these things. But it seems you, your style has avoids that completely by being more like, I always, when I would read the, the funnies, as they would call them, I would distinguish between the ones that actually looked like cartoons, that looked like comics, that were simpler. I liked those as opposed to the ones that were trying to be very realistic. Mark Trail, I don't know. I'm trying to, I would just completely, my eyes would just jump right over them. I had no interest whatsoever. There was something even in that form that was just repellent about too much realism. Yeah. When there's not a lot of realism, there's more Mark in there. Like you get to connect the lines that aren't connected. Hmm. That's something I'm encountering now where I'm working on a pilot project where a friend of mine is telling stories for children. And he's, you know, basically telling the stories on video and then I'm animating parts of them. And when he's telling the story about the squirrel getting higher and higher in the tree and he's doing this with his hand, the kids or the audience is imagining the squirrel going up. As soon as I draw it, it becomes literal and specific and limited. And the more real that rendering, the less room there is for the kid to connect the dots or the suggestions or go with the enthusiasm 
of the story or the storyteller. When I imagine you looking at the funnies and why you would be drawn to one or another, it's because it's almost like, you know, you see a scientific diagram of something that's so lovingly rendered and you're like, yeah, I, I got it. I understand. That's how the parts go together. But then you see something that's suggestive and it you're active. It draws you in. Absolutely. I'm also just like confused by that too, because there has to be a certain amount of specificity in your storytelling to connect to people, right? If you're just completely just throwing out like an artistic idea that's also going to be too somewhere up in the air and people can't quite grab onto something. So I find that that's an interesting balance to try to strike, right? Between I have to be specific enough so they do feel something, but not by imposing my own idea upon them either. Right. And that's the balance. And maybe that's where the short film or short animated films really find their footing is that they can be just suggestive enough to create a world you want to enter and have just enough story so that it's fascinating or compelling for you. And that by the time it all comes together, the 10 minutes are up and you've gotten it. And there's no need to go 80 minutes more to elaborate on this subtle idea expressed in a way that requires you to be active. We need to stop for just a minute for me to tell you about Mint Mobile. I've been a Mint Mobile customer for a year and a half or so now. And originally as an advertiser, they set me up with an account. And this was a company I had not heard of claiming to offer premium mobile service for only 15 bucks a month. I thought there must be some kind of catch, but it worked great. I mean, really, they lease space from the largest 5G network in the nation, and all plans come with unlimited talks and text and high-speed data. So how do they make the service so cheap such that the plans start at $15 a month? Well, the secret sauce is that they're the first companies to sell wireless service online only. They cut out retail stores, so there's no crazy overhead costs that get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, Mint just passes on sweet savings direct to you. So when you sign up for the service online, they send you a little card along with some some nice swag. You just pop the old card out of your existing phone, put in this new card so it doesn't affect your contacts or any of the other stuff you have set up on your phone. You can use any kind of phone. And there's a seven-day money-back guarantee. If you find that the service is not meeting your expectations, you just switch the cards back, and the whole experience has cost you no money and very little effort. But it worked for me. I mean, I've been an actual paying customer for six months now. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash pretty. That's mintmobile.com slash pretty. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash pretty. There's one of the films on the list that we're, I think, I know Brian has seen and I've loved it, The World of Tomorrow. It's told with stick figures and it's about time travel and the human condition and all of these things in 13 minutes. And I don't know if I could watch a feature film with stick figures, but watching like these 13 minutes of it, you're like captivated by how these little personages, these little effigies can hold contemplation for an idea and and carry a story forward. Is it narration heavy? I didn't actually watch that one. Or is it just visual? The filmmaker got permission to record his niece who was like five and just cut it together in a way that made it seem like she was, uh, I guess it's okay to, to ruin it for you. There's quite a bit of narration added to it to make sense of what the niece is talking about. So it's like drunk history where you're, you're depicting. Wasn't that though the, uh, another character, not necessarily narration, but the sort of narration of the AI 
it's a narration by one of the characters. That's right. It's so short, Mark. Just go watch it. But they put more humanity and more pain and loss into these stick figures than an Robert Zemeckis's animated Tom Hanks in that horrible Polar Express movie. <laughs> I'm not in this industry, so I can say terrible things. <laughs> or I can say things about terrible movies. I think there's also just a different value proposition for the audience. Because it's so short, if it doesn't work, you're not asking them to watch 90 minutes. And if it doesn't work for them, you're on to the next thing pretty quickly. And sometimes you're on to the next thing after three minutes. So you didn't buy it. You didn't buy the premise or the style isn't working for you. It's like, so what? On to the next thing. And that's a kind of a big pill to swallow for a 90 minute movie or in some cases even longer. Erica, did you have a, a thing you, you watched in particular that you wanted to talk about? I want to talk about the one that's most concretely in my mind right now, which is Benjamin's piece. Yeah, why don't you tell us about it and we'll definitely link it to folks. Thank you, Erica. This is great. And also I need to tell you a short story because it's hilarious that my film teacher from undergrad asked me to come to his class via Zoom to talk about the short film that I'd uh, made. It's called Eight Nights and it was picked up by The New Yorker. They acquired it for a year to play on their on their site. And it was a film that I'd spent about a year of my life on. And it was a story that one of my best friends had been telling me over the years. And I'd been trying to find a way to make this film with him. And we, we finally cracked it. But I was excited about sharing the film with the world. And I was super excited to share it with my undergrad film professor and his class. And we get to the Zoom meeting and um, like one kid had seen it. I was like, why is this impacting me so much? Like, I remember being in undergrad and you didn't do the reading or, or whatever. You had things going on. I think it was like having moved on from that place of seeing my crucible of creativity was, you know, at this small liberal arts school where you would toil all week to make something to show your class. And then it would be like real and received. And so I was like going back in time to that same thing, but it was, you know, different because I was sharing with these kids. I felt this great sadness. I think I was also projecting that they were all in different places on Zoom and that they didn't have the felt sense of what it meant to show something to people in a room and to to have them love it or hate it or get angry at you because you showed something that's so inappropriate or totally right on. But you've like what Mark and I with the, the group interpretations of when he was directing me and that it was all about how you could connect with people enough that you could do this performance sort of in sync. We did all these ridiculous vocal exercises just so we could get on the same page. And so Erica, when you're like, I want to hear about your film, it took me back to that memory of, of you know, talking about a film to people who hadn't seen it in a place where I first experienced how great it could be to, to share work. All right, before you continue, all three of us have seen it. You've seen it. You made it. Our listeners are going to pause. And if you don't go watch it, don't even come back to this podcast. You're dead to us. You're human garbage. Tell them where to find it. That's what I should have said to those, those kids, those undergrads. You can find it at, I believe it's the newyorker.com slash documentary. And it's a little tile called Eight Nights. Or BenjaminGoldmanPictures.com links to it. And the blog post associated with this episode will link to it. Yes. So check it out. There's no excuse. Because there are bonus videos. That's right. There are bonus videos. 
The film itself deals with memory and a little bit with celebrity. And so we we address that in some of the behind the scenes videos. I would like to tell people to check it out because not only is it short and worth your time, but one thing I have noticed a lot of is like a lot of indie animation, it seems, is kind of more geared towards adults. And a lot of it can be kind of depressing or just like really somber. This is not what I found with this, even though the subject you're hitting on is one that can definitely pull on your heartstrings. It is told in such an interesting way and not just using animation. It's an actual film using animation as part of the storytelling, but also a bit of documentary, more documentary filmmaking as well. And it's funny and interesting and also has some sadness to it. It runs these interesting gamut of human emotions in a piece that largely uses animation in a really interesting animation style. I love it. Like, Mark, kind of what you were getting at with the types of animation that we're drawn to. If it looks to me like I can see somebody's strokes, their pen strokes or something, and I, I, I can see the work that went into it, it is absolutely fascinating to me. It's like watching someone draw almost in real time. That's really great. It's funny because the, the first part of what you're saying, you're describing the film, but you're also describing my friend Daniel, who is all of those things, funny and buoyant and sad. And it's like making the film was a process of going from an anecdote that he told me in confidence because he was so embarrassed about it to a film that we could share with the world. And so a lot of the tone of the film comes from who Daniel is and who he's been for me. So We've worked together on various things. We've researched and written screenplays together to submit to Sundance Institute, or we've tried to do animated series together, animated sitcoms, tried a lot of different ways of sort of breaking into the industry. And it can be kind of daunting to keep knocking on a door that, that nobody's answering. So Daniel has a way of going, well, we'll knock a little louder. And that sort of buoyancy in our creative partnership has sort of pulled me through a lot of the darker times of trying to bring what I love to do and how I make money closer together. But looking a few layers deeper into Daniel's experience, I'd always seen him as like me turned up to 11, that my great grandparents moved here from Europe to make a better life for their children. And Daniel came over from Russia when he was nine. And his dad was raised by two Holocaust survivors who had lost their spouses and children in the Holocaust. So a widow and a widower who came together with a, I guess, kind of common spirit of we either get married and have children or this is the end. Like life is the only way forward. So there's a certain buoyancy to Daniel that is almost like, out of necessity that I tried to tap into with this film that, you know, what was honestly sometimes annoying to me was look on the bright side or, you know, whatever. It's like, look on the bright side, because what's the alternative? And that always gave me compassion and sometimes chills when I realized what a beautiful thing it is that he can have optimism. So yeah, the story at this point, if people have seen it, they kind of know if they haven't seen it, please watch it first. You might enjoy it more than hearing me bumble through it. But when he was uh, nine, Daniel moved to America with his family. And um, he dreamed of being an actor, much to his parents' dismay, because they're coming to give him a better life. Right, exactly. They're coming to give him a better life, not a life of 
pain and rejection, which is kind of what Daniel experienced until he made it onto the Conan O'Brien show. And everyone was very excited for Daniel that he'd gotten a, gonna appear on a sketch on the Conan O'Brien show. And then he finds out that what he's actually been cast for is to play one of the members of the human centipede menorah that Conan is doing for Hanukkah. So this this great immigration story of moving to America, uh, land of the free, is something Daniel has to contend with when he's on his hands and knees, strapped to the ass of the guy in front of him as Conan lights candles on their back to celebrate Hanukkah. The actual story was one that Daniel told me in confidence that he said he told his father and his father was like, please don't ever tell anybody. So we had a lot to overcome to get to this point where he could tell me the story on camera. And part of it for me was that he could be okay sharing shame and regret. People um, say, I have no regrets. And it's like, well, you haven't lived, <laughs> you know? Well, and you did that in such a great way where the film could have been played for laughs or it could have left you just feeling empty, probably. But we got to see both the absurdity and the humor, but then how much he really had to struggle with that as well. And it was just such a human story, right? Like we all go through times where we do things that we're not proud of. And to me, like that's what spoke to you. I'm not Jewish. I can't, you know, identify or empathize with with that part of the story, but it definitely made me look at my own choices, especially sometimes in the things that I've done as an actor when I haven't necessarily liked doing something, but I'm like, well, it's the job and you got to do it. You got to be grateful for it. That's interesting because there were a lot of like, the New Yorker also put it up on, on YouTube and I made the mistake of reading some of the comments, which are either people love it or hate it. And the people who hate it, would generally say something like, why did he stay? Why did he stay for seven more nights? Ask any actor and they would say, that's your contract. Right. Ask anybody who's ever had the sense that they have to pay dues, that these are just the lumps you take now so that you can, you know, appeal to the boss or the investors or fill in the blank. I admit I gasped about halfway through when you intercut footage from the Holocaust of Jews being put on the train and by the end, I was really glad you had done that because it set this tone that this is, you know, you're right. There are funny parts to this, but this is a serious piece. And growing up with you in the northern suburbs of Chicago, I didn't deal much more than kind of very incidental and very infrequent anti-Semitism. But having spent 20 years in Nebraska, I absolutely have more so, but I haven't been hit in the head with a rock and I've certainly never been round up onto a train. And it's, you know, it's these stories of of degrees and always kind of having this feeling like you don't know when the next thing is coming and then the compromises you make. And are you a Jewish American or are you an American Jew? And you can be one thing one day and one thing the next day. And that's the human condition is that we aren't always living the same life every day. I just was really so impressed with what you managed to do in six minutes. Thank you so much. It is that balance. Growing up on the North Shore, it was like, I think once somebody said, hey, don't Jew my French fries. And like, that was it. That's all I had to sort of go through as a kid. And then with Daniel, it's sort of like Daniel and, and his dad are both so buoyant that there would never be like sort of the acknowledgement of this stuff. So the drama in that story is it really interestingly juxtaposes with the art style, which is comic, not just in the sense of it's a simpler style so you can fill in the detail, but there is something just, it's funny. The way that you draw is intentionally, and some of the, the dialogue, also what you were referring to, 
Daniel's vocal delivery, you know, when he's doing his father and, oh, what are you going to do? You know, it's, I guess it's the Jewish humor thing of talking about very dark things in a, a jaunty way that lets you actually deliver some pretty hard lessons using a style that is not off-putting, that is not immediately in preparation for this. I was watching, you know, whatever Netflix had, and there was one about police shootings. Yeah, that was hard to watch. I couldn't get through it. I mean, it was like, it was a poetry thing. Like after a few stanzas of this poem, it's like, okay, I know this message. I don't want it. Like (laughs) there was not a narrative to carry me through and something to lighten it up. You know, I was interested in the art style and interested in, but I don't know. I think it's very easy, especially in the way that we watch things now. I've talked about this with songs for you put all this effort into recording a song or a podcast that people are going to like preview a minute of it. And like, no, this isn't this isn't the thing that I'm hungering for right now. And like, okay, there's my year of activity or whatever, you know, a year for you. It's so much worse than for creating a podcast, which is insignificant amount of work compared to that or a song that's somewhere in between. I, I don't know if you saw the you asked the question, why is animation so effective and what are its limitations? And for so effective, I linked to a piece called The Opposites Game, which is a a classroom erupts into a war of words as students grapple with a seemingly simple prompt. What is the opposite of a gun? And it's this beautiful piece that, for me, leaves me thinking about gun violence. But it got there and went around the back way. It didn't show me police violence or gun violence It showed me kids trying to come to terms with it, which I think is a much more interesting and useful way of saying, hey, we need to be thinking and talking about this, not we need to replay what we've seen on the news rotoscoped or stylized. So I would definitely check out The Opposites Game. It's a Ted Ed production, which I really like. And then the one that I put up as its limitations is a film that a lot of people really like. And I don't understand it at all. It's called Wind Up. And four million people really love it. I don't because I see this film and it's like there are important things, sad things, but there's a kind of like faux acting happening that's been accepted as this is what you see when you see an animated film. You see these Pixar perfect smooth things doing stuff that's kind of a lot like humans and you just kind of forgive how it's not like humans, like what Erica was talking about before with, you know, approaching the uncanny valley. Now it's sort of like, well, if the message is right, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a sad story that has a, you know, maybe a happy ending or a message. And so we'll just roll with it. Well, it rolls into saccharin. Yes, saccharin. And so what I've tried to do is say, okay, Daniel's story exists. How can I best get out of its way and shepherd it or coax it into consideration of the places where I think he's gotten out of its way or he's stopped communicating. Oh, that's a good way to put it. When he stops communicating, then that's when musical theater, right? You start singing when words no longer, traditionally, if words cannot do it, then you do it through song. So I guess it's a very similar thing. So you have the film set on him, he's telling you the story and then if you feel like something else needs to be expressed in that moment, that's when you start animating. Right. That's beautiful. And whether it's musical theater or a great children's book, it's the same thing. You have the sentence, you have the statement, and then you have my friend uh, Ethan calls the flyby where the librarian or the story reader will show you 
the illustration. I think that is probably my film school is some memory of being at the Northbrook Public Library, hearing a phrase and then seeing the flyby. And that's what I'm trying to do decades later. <laughs> I think we're in the home stretch here. Can we kind of go around and if there are our final recommendations, things we want to discuss very briefly in this area that went into our homework here? Who wants to start? I mean, I guess just circling back to World of Tomorrow, it's actually a trilogy. And um, you can only see it on Vimeo, which is kind of by design. Don Hertzfeld is kind of a perfectionist and he believes that Vimeo has better bandwidth or compression or something. So you can only see it on Vimeo or Blu-ray. I think part of it is also that he's trying to make money with it, which is hard to do. That's why I didn't see it, because he had to rent it and pay $4 for a short. And I was not willing to... <laughs> Instead of putting it up for free on YouTube and hoping that he'll make $100 at the end of the year, <laughs> he's maybe you know able to make a living by doing it this way, which, yeah, sucks. <laughs> it was streaming for a while. And it also, before the pandemic, well, the University Art House Theater here would show all the Oscar-nominated, animated, and live action and documentary shorts, which was kind of a neat way to spend the evening and kind of see all that. What really impressed me about World of Tomorrow is I did feel like most of the other nominees were a bit like wind up, that they fall into this state-sponsored glurge where, you know, you'd be like the one from Chile that one was awfully sweet about a bear, but it was also like, I think it also was some sort of parable for the people who were disappeared in Chile. But at the same time, it was like, oh man, come on. And I just can't take these one bittersweet story after the next is just, it's hard to take them all in a row like that. So hopefully when things open back up, I really seeing these things on a big screen, it'd been a long time since I had seen short animation on a big screen and it was awesome and look forward to being able to do that again. Yeah. So it looks like um, for those people who are interested in this, and I've done that too, where they only show them for a few days in like an art house cinema. And it's like all the Oscar animated shorts. It's, it's really fun. On April 2nd, Shorts TV is releasing the Oscar animated shorts. And I don't have Shorts TV, but I don't know. Where can we get Shorts TV? Because that's what I was hoping for this, that that would be available. And that's something that we could be like, hey, everybody can watch this. And of course, some of those aren't quite as indie as others, right? Like there's usually a Pixar one that's nominated or something supported by Pixar that's nominated. But there are a lot of really interesting indie ones from other countries in particular. Where you get your deer basketball type ones, where you have right. a celebrity who is behind it and, and drives it. So it's funded by someone with deep pockets who might not normally be involved in this space. Something you said about like, you know, independent animation, other countries or whatever, you can't underestimate how good it feels to have a chunk of change to develop your idea with. We took this one field trip in undergrad to go to the National Film Board of Canada in Montreal. We drove up there in a van and we get to this place where there's like, a cafeteria and like a studio where you could actually build stop motion sets. And there was like an editing place and it was like heaven. And, you know, I was like, how can I get a studio here? And they're like, be Canadian. So the idea that as a developing artist or filmmaker or animator, that there is some kind of state sponsorship means that you don't have to do something in partnership with a celebrity to make it go or because you got a job at Pixar and now can use their apparatus. It means that the societies in these countries have decided it's worthwhile to support artists who 
don't know quite what they want to say yet, but they think it's useful to support their development. Well, we should talk a little more with you in the after talk if you've got a few minutes. So folks can get that at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. Thank you so much, Benjamin. Thanks, Benjamin. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you all. This has been, yeah, a pleasure. Real pleasure. And thank you, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.